Welcome to season two of Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today, I am pleased to interview local author and teacher Jody German about her new thriller, The Protégé, and local graphic novelist Erin Lee Bow about her recent illustrated novel, Journey to the Anthropocene. Jody German has written and published 14 novels and over 20 plays for stage and screen. Her latest psychological suspense thriller, The Protégé, is out this month from Crooked Lane Books. She holds a master's degree in professional writing from the University of Southern California and is a professor of communications at Mendocino College in Northern California. Her plays have won the Ebel Playwrights Prize and the New Generation Playwrights Award. Jody lives in Ukiah. Welcome, Jody. Thank you. It's great to be here. Jody's March 2023, The Protege, is hot off the presses. Hannah is a world-renowned forensics expert and professor at a private small college in Northwest California. Her most promising student, Winter, has a hidden past that is revealed to the reader as she systematically seeks to destroy Hannah. Jody has selected a few passages to read. Isabella turns back to me. Her shiny dark hair swings forward as she moves, nearly covering one eye. The effect is alluring, I'm sure, but all I can think about is how a couple of strands have adhered to her thickly glossed lips. I can never stand to have my hair in my face. I usually pull mine back. You are a professor here, yes? I nod. Yes, I have been here since right after the college was founded seven years ago. You must have been very young. She's trying to flatter me. Personally, I've never understood why looking young is so important. It's indicative of a culture that values physical beauty and prowess over wisdom and experience. While I'm trained not to judge the prevailing values of a culture... I can't help but prefer the value systems of the Hopi or the Koreans, where the elders are treated with the reverence we Americans reserve for rock stars and supermodels. I was 33, I say simply. Isabella blinks her thickly mascarad lashes and forms a pleasant little smile, but I can tell she's only being polite. The eyes again, telling the truth, in spite of all the other facial muscles conspiring to feign interest. She is interested, but not in my academic career. She wants to know one thing, if I'm a threat to her marriage. I wish I could just tell her how baseless her fears are. Of all the women in this room, I'm the least likely to fall prey to her husband's charms. This is why parties exhaust me. All the social niceties contrast sharply with the body language tells. My brain races, trying to make sense of the contradictions. A waiter carrying a tray of miniature meatballs offers them to us. Isabella and Mick both take one, but I stick to my champagne. I find conversation challenging enough without adding the effort required to masticate and swallow, all while guarding against the social faux pas of talking with your mouth full. Isabella takes a delicate bite and somehow manages not to mar her lip gloss. When she swallows, her throat moves. I find myself fixating on her sternocleidomastoid. I have to drag myself back to hear her question. You are teaching the robotics like Mick? Lynch breathes out a little laugh. <laughs> no, Dr. Briars is a forensic anthropologist. She studies cultural artifacts. Not artifacts, I interrupt, correcting him. Human remains. Dead bodies? Isabella looks uneasy. I focus my attention on her. Whatever's left of the corpse, I examine to reconstruct the cause and approximate time of death. I specialize in forensic taphonomy, or, in simpler terms, decomposition. 
After just a day or two, the internal organs start to break down. Soon after, the body bloats, emitting blood-containing foam from the mouth and nose. She puts down her meatball with a mew of distaste. Of course, anthropoid colonization affects the decomposition process. Anthropoid? She echoes, her brow furrowed. Bugs, Lynch clarifies. He looks like he's trying not to laugh, which I find perplexing. There's nothing especially humorous about anthropoids. I continue my explanation, holding her gaze, though she looks increasingly queasy. Various carrion insects are attracted to the biological and chemical changes a carcass undergoes as it decays. I examine this as well, though that's more the purview of my entomologist colleagues. Joe finally returns from his strategic wooing of Lester Wang. He looks bright-eyed and flushed, the way he always does at a party. A quartet of stringed instruments has started playing. Joe's always in his element when there's music, booze, and beautiful people filling a room. Uh-oh, he says by way of greeting. He nods at Isabella. I know that look. Is Hannah regaling you with tales of rotting flesh? <laughs> That's great. That was Jody German reading from her latest thriller, The Protégé. Coming up, Jody talks about her writing and inspiration. Jody, your main character in The Protégé is a professor, and so are you. Did you have an experience as a teacher that inspired the basis for your thriller? Well, you know, one of the things that I really like about suspense is the chance to explore what really scares us. Right. It's not so much that I've had this kind of experience, but twice now I have written about a professor in an extremely problematic and threatening relationship with one of her students. And that is a that is a fear of mine, certainly. So I wouldn't say that it's based on actual experience, more the nightmare that perhaps every professor experiences of, you know, really locking horns with, with someone that you're trying to mentor. You write both plays and thrillers. Does one type of creative writing help you with the other? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I started as a playwright primarily. When I was in college, I was interested in studying theater. And kind of by chance, I took a playwriting class. It was really a play development class. So we were working with student actors and directors. And for me, it was this utter revelation that writing didn't have to be so lonely, right? Because that's, I mean, writers spend a tremendous amount of time alone. And the playwriting process, it took my work and put it into other people's hands so that they were invested on the same level. The actors, the directors, the designers, everyone involved in a production cared about it and, and really wanted to make it their own. So I always, I always come home to playwriting, you know, when the process of publishing novels, as much as I love it, it can feel a little abstract, right? because you're sort of sending a message out in a bottle and you don't necessarily get the feedback. But playwriting is very immediate. You can feel what the audience is feeling as you sit in the theater, and I love that contrast. What inspired you to write a thriller about a forensic expert? You know, Hannah was really an interesting character for me. She kind of came to me as a voice and a personality that, for the first time, I think I'm writing a protagonist who is really, really different from me in terms of how she thinks and the way she operates in the world. And I, I don't know, I suppose her profession sort of came with her. 
right? It wasn't so much that I wanted to explore this profession, although I have always been fascinated by anthropology. That was something that I, I was an anthro major before I switched to theater and playwriting. So I do, I do love that field. But she's um, in the very technical end of that, right, where, you know, she's extremely scientific. And there was nothing scientific about me. I, it took more research to, to create her as a character. But there's something about her that I really love. Hannah is highly functioning, but she's unable to fully read the people around her. Would you say she's on the spectrum? You know, it's funny because my stepmother is reading the book and she's a, she has a PhD in sociology and uh, social work. And she asked me the same question. She said, Hannah seems like she's on the spectrum. And I I thought, well, you know, like I said, she just kind of came to me. The, the voice and the, and the personality uh, really arrived fully formed. It wasn't like I needed to develop her. And it's not like I said to myself, I'm going to write a character who's on the spectrum. As I actually don't really, I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not sure I'm qualified to diagnose my characters in that way. And Hannah herself does not identify that way. But the more that I got to know her and writing her, the more I kept thinking, Hmm. You know, she really kind of displays a lot of qualities that um, would be shared with that community. So I guess I leave it up to the reader to decide. Right, that's a good. You provide a lot of detail about what might be found in a forensic lab. What was your research process? So like I said, with no scientific background myself, this did take a fair amount of research. The lab part, I had to research lab accidents and really dig into what happened there. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but that was really my interest was trying to figure out what are the ways that someone could sabotage someone like Hannah, a professor in the sciences, and what are the ways that they could really get at you know what she cares about. And in her particular case, you know, lab safety is something she really cares about. She takes a lot of pride in that. And so I knew that that would be a way, a form of sabotage that would really get to her. So yeah, I looked at lab accidents. I looked at the write-ups and the equipment. I knew nothing about any of it. And I just have to hope that it's uh, on point, that no scientists will (laughs) call me on it. I did also, I had a, a nurse that I asked a number of questions when it came to like medical emergencies and then a fish and game warden in Humboldt County who I asked questions about sort of legal procedure and, you know, a chain of command when it comes to finding a dead body in the woods, that sort of thing. So, yeah, a lot of conversations with people who do know the stuff that I don't know. Did you visit a forensics lab or? No, I did not. <laughs> what was the hardest part of your research? I mean, you know, I think that the the internet is quite amazing in terms of the amount of information that's on tap right there and the way that it's, it's quite easy to feel that one is an expert rather quickly without actually being an expert of any sort. I suppose there uh, there's definitely a fear of like getting all getting all of the medical terminology correct, all the anatomy terms, you know, because like I said, I don't really I don't know that stuff inherently. It's not I don't have a deep knowledge of it at all. So just allowing myself to inhabit Hannah and trust that her voice, her sort of scientific voice would come through in spite of it not being me at all. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Coming up, Jody talks about her writing process and her experience with agents and publishers. She has her second reading. As soon as I walk through the door, I notice the smell. It's musky. The air around me feels thick. I pause in the doorway, slipping off my shoes, listening hard. The wind outside clangs the wind chimes. 
rustles through the pines. In the distance, the surf murmurs. I stand motionless, sniffing the air, alive to the slightest sound. I'm a wary native, testing the jungle for predators. Am I crazy, or has someone been here? I kneel, studying the floor. A tiny smudge of mud is smeared into the oak planks. I didn't leave that smear. I always take off my shoes, and I would have noticed if it was there when I left the house this morning. Somebody has definitely been here. Wearing only socks, I tiptoe over to the living room and grab a large Turkish vase. It's got enough heft to do real damage before it breaks. I'm not a violent person, but I've had to defend myself before. I'm not afraid to knock someone out if that's what needs to happen. I threatened to cut a cabbie's throat once in a taxi outside Istanbul. In Alaska, I had to point a gun at someone, never mind that it wasn't loaded. In Cairo, I avoided being raped by breaking my assailant's nose. You don't travel like I do without encountering a few dangerous situations. I've taught myself to live in the moment, to sense the threat before it becomes unmanageable. It sickens me resorting to violence, but there is power in knowing you can defend yourself. I've never had this feeling in my own home before. In spite of my isolation and the improbability of someone breaking in, I always lock the doors and windows before I leave. This far north of Salt Gulch, I have few neighbors. It's mostly pot growers up here, and they keep to themselves. There was no sign of forced entry when I let myself in. Moving through the house, a niggling sense of absurdity starts to gnaw at me. Everything appears unchanged. I check the back door. Again, nothing amiss. Maybe all the trouble at work is messing with my head. Then I recall the smear of mud, the smell, and I know I'm right. It's something my travels have taught me. What we call intuition is actually a complex amalgam of the senses, internal and external, working together to protect us against danger. I've learned to trust my senses. I creep toward the bedroom. My fingers tighten their grip on the vase. I hold it like a baseball bat, ready to swing. The door is ajar. I inch toward it, soundless in my socks, and push it open. The room is empty. I check the closet, all clear. Then I turn to the bed and my heart stops. There, on the pillow, is the photo Amy took of Joe and me last summer. We're sitting on a picnic blanket at Mercy Springs Park. I remember the day, a balmy Sunday in June. The three of us gathered there in the afternoon. Joe brought his guitar and he played us a few songs. We ate tacos and drank beer and laughed. For me, it was a rare moment among friends, a carefree reprieve from responsibility and social awkwardness. When I framed it, Amy took this as further proof that I'm secretly pining for Joe. She was wrong, though. What I saw when I looked at that photo was proof I'm not alone. I have friends I can be myself with. For most people, that's probably a given. For me, it's precious. I trace my finger over the glass. It's shattered. A spiderweb pattern fractures outward, a violent hole at its center. Coldness rushes over me. That is a particularly um, creepy scene. So I have a few questions that are about the writing process and your publishing experience. Your last few thrillers have been published by Crooked Lane. 
You also published under St. Martin's Griffin. How many publishers have you used? I started with Red Dress Inc. That was my first book deal uh, in contemporary women's fiction. And then I was with Penguin Random House for my young adult books, most of them. And then I went with St. Martin's and and now with Crooked Lane, who they're distributed by Penguin Random House. So it's kind of nice. They're, they're very boutique They're very small. And they just really focus on suspense. But they have that publishing arm of Penguin Random House, which is, you know, obviously one of the bigger publishers. So, yeah, I, I guess... I, th- I don't know if that's normal or if most writers stick with one and never leave. I certainly have drifted from one genre to another and, you know, kind of needed to reinvent myself a number of times. And so that's that's part of it. You know, the, the folks that I was writing YA and, you know, when I was publishing YA through Penguin Random House, that wasn't necessarily an easy move to just go to a different genre. So basically each each genre switch or, you know, change in focus. Really each book, unless I'm working under a multi-book deal, which I sometimes happen in the past, but, you know, it, it requires us to go out afresh and, you know, find find the publisher that's the best home for this particular book. You're saying we, I'm guessing that means you have an agent. That's correct, yes. And how did you select your agent or what was your process to get an agent? I have had three agents over the course of my career. I've been publishing since, I think my first book came out in 2004. So, you know, it's been kind of a run here. It's been a minute. And I I started with my first agent. I met her through one of my professors in grad school. I was going to school at University of Southern California, and I had a professor who liked what I was doing in workshop. And she said, you know, I really want you to meet my agent. I think it would be a good fit. So I started there. And I was with that agent for about 10 years, I think. And then, you know, uh, the thing with an agent is that, on the one hand, it's often touted as a kind of marriage, right? That, you know, that this is someone who's going to be with you, not just for one book, but for your entire career. And so finding the right fit is important. But like many marriages, uh, if both people are not enthusiastic for the entire period of time of that relationship, it sometimes makes more sense to move on, right? And so, you know, each of my agents, I mean, I've had very amiable and, uh, you know, not problematic breakups, but at, you know, at some point in our, in both of our careers, we just sat down and said, this is not a good fit anymore. Sometimes that had to do with genre shifting or, you know, agents also shift in their, in their focus and their own predilections, you know, what they're looking for. So yeah, this is the third agent that I've been with now. I will say that when I found my current agent, you know, when I was looking for my current agent, I knew that I wanted to write suspense And that was something I hadn't done before. I did have the advantage of having a number of published books already in my wheelhouse, right? So I wasn't coming at the agent cold. But I I actually really enjoyed the search. I made an exhaustive list. I found all the all the agents that I was interested in and kind of ranked them and made, you know, I had a huge file with all the notes about, you know, who they represented. And I was very focused in my search. And was just like a machine, right? Just, you know, sending queries out. And when a rejection would come, I made myself not get too lost in the despair of that and just move on to the next name on the list. And I think if there are any people out there that are searching for an agent or, you know, looking for helpful information about how to do that, 
Keep in mind that agents are human beings too, and they like to know that you have done your research and that you have chosen them, right? So emphasizing in your query, not just you're an agent and I need an agent and therefore please represent me, but you're an agent who really shines in this particular genre. And I see that you did wonderful things with this author's book. And, you know, you, you need to let them know that it's, it's not, you're not just saying, I want an agent, any agent, right? Similar, again, back to the, the relationship thing. I mean, if you put out a call, I just want to marry someone, anyone, I don't care who it is, it's not going to get a, a great response, right? But if you know what you want, and you tell the person, what you see in them in their career pattern that fits with you and what you're looking for. I think that's more effective. Is there a built-in fan base for mystery novels or thrillers? Yes, and I think so. And I I think the parameters of mystery and thrillers and suspense is expanding. I don't want to make too definitive of a statement about this, but I I saw a number of years ago when uh, Gone Girl came out, there was kind of this new flood of interest in women suspense writers and the ways that women can take, well, it's sometimes referred to as domestic suspense, right? And the, the really, I, I think what that means is a spotlight on relationships and kind of the everyday relationships of our lives our, with our family, our friends, etc. And finding the uh, finding the dread in that and pulling that apart and really exploring that in depth. So yes, I think, you know, there's, there's a built in audience. I mean, there's, a, I don't think the appetite for whodunits has ever truly gone away, right? I mean, there's all kinds of fluctuations in the in the publishing industry, but people have always craved that, that sort of whodunit. But now I also see this other, to me, much more exciting sphere of the why done it, right? The psychology behind various crimes. And of course, there's a huge cr true crime interest right now, both in television and podcasts. So yeah, I mean, for me, it was really this landscape that kind of opened up after I loved writing young adult. I I absolutely adored it, but I kind of hit a wall with it where I felt that I was the age that I was getting to. I just really, I couldn't authentically relate or create that 16-year-old voice anymore. And so suspense gave me this this landscape to explore all the horrors of, of aging and, and you know, um, the social anxieties and of course there's no lack of those right now in our in our culture so how many novels do you publish per year and is there like a number that you're expected to produce is there a time frame mm -hmm. well a book a year is a fairly normal pace and i have been on that schedule with some certainly some breaks here and there but uh, that's the rhythm that I've been in for the last few books is, is approximately one book per year. I have read that there are some, especially, you know, sort of blockbuster writers who are now trying to double that pace where they're under pressure to get two books out a year, which seems pretty challenging <laughs> and a little bit crazy making. But I was just reading an article about a self-published author who started using this AI assistance where you can like sort of set up the parameters of a scene and then basically artificial intelligence will write that scene and then you just sort of go back and you know kind of 
edit it a bit, but, but that's, those, those are folks that are trying to turn out like a book every few months, you know, in order to make a living at it. So I think that would be really, really difficult. Does your publisher handle the copy editing and marketing as well as production and distribution? They do. Okay. Uh, marketing is the only piece in there that's sort of a little bit yes, a little bit no. Certainly authors are encouraged to do their own marketing as much as possible in tandem with in-house marketing. And to be totally frank with you, it's a little mysterious to me. Like I don't know. I've never been told the marketing budget for any of my books. You know, they're, they're, it's not a terribly transparent industry in that way. But, you know, I have I have all the social media, not that I'm terribly active on it, but there's a lot of pressure for authors to promote themselves, which I have never met an author who is 100% comfortable with that. It's it's incredibly anxiety producing for most authors, you know, to to try to sell their wares. And, you know, a lot of us feel like, come on, I wrote it. Isn't that enough? <laughs> Do I have to also hit the streets and convince people to buy it? I've learned over the years to take on the challenges of marketing that are fun for me, that you know feel fruitful, and not let that completely eclipse my love of writing. Because I do, I do know that when I I've self-published two books as an experiment, uh, two young adult supernatural sort of witchy books and I just wanted to see what it was like to to self-publish and the answer is liberating but also exhausting because the kinds of efforts that I had to do to you know get my book in front of book bloggers etc it was just it was a whole other full-time job on top of teaching and writing so it's a lot of work are there any particular authors in the genre that you look up to? Ruth Ware is a British suspense author that I really admire. I love Tana French. She's an Irish suspense author that does wonderful, wonderful detailed work. Um, she had a, a series called The Dublin Murder Squad that moved from one detective to another, sort of tag team style, different perspectives. She's just an amazing stylist and a, a lovely author. Those are a couple of the of the standouts for me, but I am constantly reading in this genre. I know some authors don't like to read in the genre that they're immersed in. I mean, they don't, they're afraid of being too affected by other authors' voices. And I feel the exact opposite. I love just absorbing what other writers in the genre are doing and thinking about their various ways of handling the same problems that I face. And um, even just, you know, listening for a fresh phrase or a way of using a verb. I just, I, I feel like, you know, language is a social thing. I mean, it's not like we create our work in a vacuum. And so authors who say they don't read in the genre that they work in out of fear of being overly influenced, I just think influence me, right? If you're good, I want to be influenced by you. I want to learn from you. So that's my approach. So how often do you write? And do you have a dedicated space? I do not have a dedicated space right now. And it's actually kind of a problem. I used to, uh, we lived out in Potter Valley for a while. And I, I had my own, you know, writing studio out there. And since we moved to Ukiah, I haven't had that that luxury. 
So I am, I'm currently lusting after everyone's garden sheds. I walk around Ukiah and say, oh, maybe I could set up in there. I have a fantasy about uh, having someone's mother-in-law unit that I could rent as a, as a dedicated space. Do I write every day? I do write almost every day. I sometimes give myself a break from it, but I'm mostly a, a very compulsive writer. You know, uh, people say to me, wow, you must be very disciplined. You know, you're so pro prolific. And I think of it more like an addiction, like I kind of can't stop myself. Now that said, I, you know, sometimes it's just journaling or a writing exercise, or, you know, it's not always composing the next novel or play. But it's, it's really, I don't feel very grounded or myself if I'm not writing basically every day. So are you the type that writes it all and then goes back and edits or do you edit as you go? A little of both. I try, I am not a perfectionist when it comes to a rough draft. I mean, sure, I fall prey to that, you know, put the comma in, take the comma out, put it back in, take it back out, that sort of dance that all writers, I think, indulge in at some point. But I, I really try to keep my inner critic out of the room during the first draft. I try not to think too much about audience or, you know, how reviewers will feel about this. I really try to protect that creative space and make it my own. And of course, the best feeling is when you get lost in it, right? When, you know, the entire world just disappears and you're just completely immersed in the work. That's really, I think that's my addiction is the total loss of self or any sort of external distraction when I'm just so focused. How do you find time and life balance between teaching and writing? Well, I just this semester, I started teaching creative writing again. And we just had our first class last week. So it's early days, but I'm already noticing how working with other writers in a creative writing context really helps to feed my work, right? And I think those the solitary nature of writing is also it's balanced out by the very not solitary nature of teaching right I mean there's just whole rooms full of people that are you know every semester refreshed and and new and I I get inspired by my students both by by their work and their personalities and the kinds of struggles they go through just having a, a pool of humanity that I'm interacting with every day and oftentimes in very satisfying ways you know talking about intellectual issues that they're struggling with one of the things that I love about the community college is I can walk into a room and have students in their teens there and students all the way up to their 80s, right? So it's just a very diverse population in terms of life experience. I would say teaching gives me that social element and balances out the solitary nature of writing. So have you started your next th thriller? Yes. I am actually... COVID had, had a strange effect on me. I became like a hamster on a wheel. I think my anxiety got channeled into my work, which was nice for suspense, right? If it was supposed to be a happier genre, it might not work so well, but I, I kind of couldn't stop writing. So I happen to have a stockpile of like three manuscripts deep right now where I'm, you know, sort of waiting to get those out there. And I mean, they're in various stages of revision and, and polishing, but this is the, probably the first time in my life that I've had such a backlog of work, not because of lack of contract, but just being crazy prolific for a brief period of time. Well, that's great. 
I had a different effect on the group. <laughs> I, like, I have heard that from many writers. I know it didn't work that way for everyone. <gasps> it did not. <laughs> Are you planning any local public readings or tours? Yes, I just spoke to the Mendocino Book Company here in Ukiah yesterday, and uh, we're planning to do an event. I'm sorry to say I don't have an exact date, but we're I will do a reading uh, in April at the Mendocino Book Company, and you can also find you can find this book, The Protege, as well as my previous book, The Summer We Buried, uh, at the Mendocino Book Company. If you're interested, I did do a number of online book events for the last couple of books. So I think that'll be probably dying down. But that was kind of fun being able to, you know, zoom into a bookstore in Texas and talk with other authors on a panel there. So the publicity plans are still a work in progress, though. Okay, great. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. You've been listening to an interview with Ukiah author Jody German about her new thriller, The Protégé. Next, I will interview Fort Bragg's graphic novelist Erin Lee Bow about her recent illustrated novel, Journey to the Anthropocene. Erin Lee Bow is an award-winning graphic novelist. She recently released her third graphic novel, Journey to the Anthropocene. It is in many ways a complete departure from her first two graphic novel memoir releases, yet her feminist voice, slightly naughty illustrations, and wicked humor remain intact. Journey to the Anthropocene delves into the myths of dragons. Bo illustrates how they were depicted in art through the ages and gives us a brief, colorful education on how various cultures venerated or vilified the dragon. She also dips her toes into the current state of human interaction with our planet and brings us back to dragons. She encourages us to embrace forgiveness and find our own inner mythical dragon. The book is a feast for the eyes, and while there is text, it's not something we can do justice to by reading. So I'll jump right into the interview. Thank you, Erin, for joining us on Upwelling today. You're welcome. What inspired you to create this dragon-themed graphic novel? My favorite theme for writing and artwork has always been humor, but in 2018, political and world events got to me, and I thought, oh, geez, I've got to do more relevant work. Instead of joking around about the trials and tribulations of my own life, or my grandmother's underwear. So through reading, I learned that our present geologic era is the Anthropocene, that humans are a dominant geologic force in changing the world. This new era is a time of devastating threats, such as climate change, species extinction, rampant pandemics, and global inequality. So I decided to take the dragon myth as a way to talk about our journey as humans through history. I imagine dragons are fun to illustrate. There's so much movement and color. How long did it take you to depict a culturally representative dragon? Well, the first step was research. Like in the third chapter of the book, I recreated a series of historical artworks in color, watercolor. For example, one is a Rubens painting of an armored St. George wielding a sword while riding a magnificent blonde stallion. Below his horse's hoofs is an extremely ugly dragon struggling to remove a broken sword from its gaping jaw. While in the background, a golden-haired maiden clutches a white lamb as her dress slips down from her pink body. Very dramatic and weird, 
because a woman seems space out and only mildly distracted by the action, like a bit player only there to add a bit of sex to the scene. And that painting was quite difficult to do and the hardest of all the historical paintings. It might have been even two weeks that I struggled with it because it was difficult. A good portion of the book focuses on Western art, depicting St. George and the Maiden. I love how you show these pieces from the Maiden's point of view. Is the vilified dragon of Western culture a symbol of female power? Well, the tale of the knight who saves the helpless maiden from being devoured by a dragon is one of the oldest legends in the world. The hero's fight against a dragon celebrates his masculinity and his mastery over nature. In ancient art, women are shown at one with nature and hold the leash of the dragon. As time went by, they lost their natural power and became subordinate to men their physical stance evolving into powerlessness. This unequal relationship and the exploitation of nature leads directly to our present time. Is art history something you've studied for a long time? No, not really, but I do love going to museums, galleries, and looking at art books. The book takes a dark turn in the second half as it depicts the myriad ways humans are destroying both the planet and humanity itself. It visually reads a lot like the nightly news, yet you end it with a hopeful call to action. Do you think humans can evolve enough to save ourselves and the planet? Time will tell, but yes. I believe humans are capable of making phenomenal changes for the better. In the face of overwhelming social and ecological crisis, we could transform apathy into positive action. Our existence is dependent on the natural world. So shifting away from the old dominator, self-centered mindset to people who love the earth could be incredible. Right, thank you. Journey to the Anthropocene is a full-color graphic novel. While Amazed and Elated was done in black and white, what is the difference in both time and cost for a full-color graphic novel? Well, it's a bit easier to only paint in one color, but the real reason I made my earlier books in black and white was purely to cut down in cost. To print a full-color book costs at least one-third more. Since I self-published, the cost was an issue. Amazed and Elated received the Independent Publisher's Silver Award under Humor Cartoon Graphic Novel in 2016. Are you going to enter Journey to the Anthropocene? Yes. I've already entered it in the contest, so fingers crossed, because the competition is quite fierce. And graphic novels have become more popular, so there's probably going to be more people entering the contest. So what would you tell other writers about independent publishing, pros and cons? Well, it is hard to get a publisher to take anybody on right now. But the great thing about self-publishing is that you can do it, and anybody can do it. And in fact, you can make a book you can make any number of books. You can make just 25 to give to your friends. So I think anybody who writes could publish a book and be very happy with it. And a lot of people are making books that are just catalogs of their family or what with their trips. So it's wide open right now. And so I would say go for it. Although also you have to be the one that distributes the book. And that can be quite difficult to get a network of people who are interested in buying your book. So it's the cost and how much, it, how much support you get that really is essential. Is Amazed and Elated still in print? 
It is listed on Amazon, which publishes it as a print-on-demand book. The quality is quite low because they use cheap paper, so the artwork looks anemic and poorly registered. But I still have some from a professional printer, which I sell myself. Okay. You publish under an assumed name. Why is that? Well, for one thing, I didn't want my mother to know I was writing about family secrets. She once asked my sister, if Sharon's such a good artist, why the hell does she paint the crap that she does? Also, I discovered that there were a ton of published writers with the same name as mine, from cookbooks to lesbian adventure novels. So I took the first two and the last two letters off my name and with the addition of my middle name, I use Aaron Lebo. The cover reviews on your book are interesting because of both the well-thought-out reviews and the reviewers. How do you decide who to ask to review your book? Do you have more reviews than you can use? Okay, well, to get reviews, I ask my friends, who are kind enough to write something nice. And no, I don't have more reviews, but I'm always happy to have someone give me another, which I can put on my website. Well, I understand you're active in the community. How do you balance that activity with your art? Being an artist can make one a hermit, but a lonely one. Loneliness is a big problem in our society, which the pandemic didn't help. Thankfully, we have a community in Mendocino with lots of wonderful organizations that welcome people with open arms. So I am active because it leads to happiness. Does your community work help you succeed? Sure. Like I belong to the Mendocino Writers Club, which is a, has great speakers and opportunities to help one succeed in developing as a writer. Plus, the club can answer questions and offer opportunities for making friends with other writers. Will you be displaying any of the artwork from your novel locally? I have shown artwork locally, like I have a piece in the current Mendocino Art Center show, but the work from the book probably wouldn't appeal to a regular gallery because it's more illustrative than fine art. How can people find and purchase Journey to the Anthropocene? The book is at the bookstore in Fort Bragg on Laurel Street and at Gallery Bookshop in Mendocino, or I sell them through my website, Aaron Lee Bow. Dot com. Thank you, Erin, for joining us on Upwelling. You're quite welcome. You've been listening to the fifth episode of Upwelling with local author Jody Gurman and local graphic novelist Erin Lebo. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>